This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi-Williams, and this is the What Races in Vegas Stays in Vegas sports business podcast, The Sportacast. What was it mom always said? If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Correct? Correct. <laughs> yes. The, the, this is a literal. Have you ever, Eben, have you ever driven on the Las Vegas Strip? I have not. I've okay. never been to Las Vegas, period. What? I know. It's crazy. You have never been to Las Vegas? Never done a bachelor party. Never done a weekend out there. Yeah. Never been to Las Vegas. I used to own an investment property at the Palms Hotel and Casino years ago. I bought the the unit, never seeing it online. I never once stayed there. My wife went with her friends and stayed there and used it once, said it was very nice. I never, ever stayed there. And I don't know how many years, there was a long gap. And I sold it also online, never, ever set foot in the place. Was it a profitable investment? Is it a money loser? How'd you, how'd you end up? Believe it or not, I actually ended up on the positive side of a Las Vegas real estate investment. So good for, for you. Yeah. For me, it was good. It was an excellent piece because the way it works, you know, hotel condos, they put it in the rental pool for the hotel and the Palms was a very hot commodity back then. And uh, it was occupied like 85% of the time at pretty good rates, by the way. Awesome. Yeah. So it worked out. But another reason, if you needed another reason, not only is Tim Laiwiki, by the way, an Oakview group building a billion dollar casino, part of an entertainment uh, district. And we've seen plenty of those work around uh, the world. Um, Tim said, now there's no guarantee, but I can tell you this billion dollar arena will be ready for an NBA team. I mean, what would you put as the percentage that at some point, and I don't want to put a, a timestamp on it, but at some point the NBA will call Las Vegas home. I think the percentage would be extremely high, Scott. If you had, if we could back this conversation up maybe five years ago, if you had told me that there would be an NFL team in Las Vegas, an NHL team in Las Vegas, Before an MLS NBA, team yeah. in Las Vegas, an F1 race in my in Las oh, Vegas. Whoa, 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 whoa. We and, haven't even got to the F1 race. We've been totally tangential. And, We're going to get to and, F1. And maybe even, depending on what the Oakland Athletics do, maybe even a baseball team in Las Vegas before the NBA had a team in Las Vegas, I would have told you you were crazy. But yeah, I think, I think the likelihood of the NBA being there is extremely high. It is shocking to me that there is a chance that it will be essentially the last major global property to, to do something permanent in Las Vegas. That that part is is the shocking thing to me. Yeah, I'd like to see what that expansion fee will be. And if the arena is there, now you've got T-Mobile. Obviously, it houses the Knights. So I yep. don't know. I, I'm assuming that T-Mobile is also a basketball-capable 
facility. And here's Tim Laiwiki coming in and building a new facility and proclaiming and, you know, kind of planting his flag. Like, hey, Adam Silver, you know, or any possible groups that are thinking about bringing a team to Las Vegas. We're here. We'll have a building ready for you. It'll be beautiful. But uh, we did talk about driving in, uh, on the Strip and driving in Vegas. Uh, and the reason why is because some really fast cars in 2023, uh, I, don't, I don't, we don't have the exact date, <laughs> but at some point in November in 2023 on a Saturday night, uh, you're probably going to want to stay off the Strip because there's going to be cars going probably at 212 miles per hour around the Strip. And I mean, F1 is a hot property right now. You have Miami, you have Austin, and now Las Vegas. What an event town. Yeah, and this is this is just genuinely cool, right? The 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 way in which when the NHL played that game in Tahoe, right? The the background of the lake and the and the snow capped mountains just looked really cool. Beauty shots, F- baby. F one has the ability to do that on road courses in essentially any city they want to and can figure out how to race in. The idea of F1 cars racing down the Las Vegas Strip, passing casinos and hotels that are that are famous with all the lights at night, that is like video game material in some ways, right? That That is, to me, one of the really interesting and, and cool things about F1 is its ability to kind of do these things and to make it an, an annual stop on the calendar. And and this is a no-brainer, both between kind of the glitz and the glamour of Las Vegas. It is, this is a rough comparison, but the, the success that they've had in Monaco, you could maybe make an argument that Las Vegas is essentially the Monaco of of, of America. Just the ability that they have to, to do things in these places, just given the kind of star-studded nature of, the, of F1, the type of people who like to go to those races, everything about this feels like it's a slam dunk to me. All right. I, I'm, I'm struggling to process you, you're telling me that you would pick Las Vegas as the Monaco of the U.S. I, and, and so I may be totally off on this. I, I'm saying that just in like it is the like the gambling. Okay, mecca so you're talking the, James the, Bond in the white dinner jacket. Yeah, walking. that's okay. kind of what okay. I'm talking about. But I would also say that that Vegas has like a glitz and glamour to it that that not many other cities. I would say the Miami F1 would be, to. but I would say the Miami F1 is more akin to the Monaco. That's Certainly the, the, has the yachts, like the water the glitz, waterfront the property. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yes, in that regard, then then you're definitely right on that. But yeah, to me, this is. I was thinking when I saw this announcement, Scott, about Zed Run, the the um the the Web 3.0 horse racing platform. Right, one of the things that everybody talked about Zed Run that was so cool about Zed Run is because it was a totally digital property, you could host the races anywhere. You could overlay a horse race down the Vegas Strip. This was an example that was given to me. You can race the horses down the Vegas Strip, which obviously you would never do in real life. Well, F1 is essentially doing that in in real life. I think, that, again, that, that that is the really cool thing here. It's just the, the ability to do this on location, on streets that people drive on normally, really gives kind of a set piece uh, aura to this race that I think is, is amazing. Do we still have our tangent trumpet? Make way for a Sportico tangent. I've been in my office here, or the, you know, the office we all share. Do you know there's a picture of LeBron James on a bicycle? I did. <laughs> I did I, not I, know that. I have not seen this. I, I look up and there's a picture of LeBron reading something on a bicycle. I, I don't know. Ready for the bad news? If we had a bad or a bad idea trumpet, how about this? You said the kind of the famous landmarks. How about the cars having to pass the famous Bellagio fountains and mm. actually getting water on the windshields and having to actually you know, flick on the windshields because it's soaking wet? <laughs>
I don't think too many drivers, you know, I, I, I don't see the drivers there saying, yeah, that's a, that sounds like a really good idea. Lewis Hamilton's maybe not. I think we'll be okay. Max Verstappen saying, no, 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 I, we, we have enough to do without that. You need to put on the wet tires for that lap for the, yeah. for the Bellagio fountain lap. And then you need to box again and, and take them off. <laughs> Yeah, it, it would be like video game where that could be, you know, knowing that's coming up at the, in the last, you know, the, maybe the second to last turn that, you know, don't give up because <laughs> you got in front of you might not make it. But seriously, what what came to me, Edmund, what came to mind when I when I heard about this is, is the fact that this is not a one day event. Like you're, you're going to have a multi-day destination. If the race is Saturday, you've got things going on prior to that. You've got people coming to town early. So, of course, I mean, uh, I haven't talked to our good friend, Nick Peacock-Smith, the live event coordinator here at Sportico, but uh, he better jump on this quickly and figure out what we're doing, right? Because I think we need to be involved in hosting some sort of event around this. It seems like our our sort of crowd. Um, how much do you believe, like, you hear a lot about Netflix and Drive to Survive. Now, and I've given you my take on, you know, Jacob Feldman did a great thread on Twitter about what was already in place at F1 before Drive to Survive and why this was already, the wheels, no pun intended, were already in motion for this popularity growth in the US. But I use my focus group of one, it'll be two this time, my son and my wife. I can guarantee you they don't watch F1 or never did, did not watch F1. But I walked in one night and they were watching Drive to Survive and they were riveted. It was about whether it was the pit crew or the tech, or the technical guy or whatever, it was about people. It wasn't really about racing. It was just drama about people. They loved it. Now, part two of that is a, equation for F1 is how do you convert those eyeballs into weekend viewers of races? It has not happened in the Sashnik household. It has happened elsewhere. You just get the feeling, though, if you're, if you're looking sort of for the hockey stick growth, you get the feeling that they are building momentum in the U.S., yeah, I think this is such an interesting question because in in my focus group of of say five or six friends of of whom uh, everybody loved the Netflix show, I can name two that are kind of now religiously watching races, and and I'd put myself in the second group alongside your wife and your son. I tuned in for a couple and and realized that I actually thought the 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 presentation of the race did didn't satisfy the the interest that I had developed over the course of the show, right? Which is human interest, which is caring about the guy who's in 16th place racing against his teammate who's in 17th place and the drama there. A lot of that gets stripped out of at least the broadcasts that I've seen on the racing side. So I do think there is certainly a lot of people for whom watching Drive to Survive on Netflix has been a gateway into now watching races on on, on Saturdays and Sundays. And then there's a whole bunch of people for whom just being more aware of it is also kind of helpful to, for, for, for Liberty Media, who owns F1. I think just having more people that know who Max Verstappen is, which I do now, more people who know Daniel Ricciardo is, which I do now, I did not know who those people were a year ago. That is also helpful in some kind of tangential way. I think the really interesting thing that that Liberty has done in, in the couple of years that it's owned F1, Scott, is that, and this is smart of them, they, they've really leaned into F1 as a media property. And I'm not sure it really matters as much if, if, if people uh, are watching all of the races or if they are just kind of consistently tuning into an, an annual Netflix show and also reading a little about a bit, bit about what's happening on and off the course. One other thing I'll say about, about F1, it really does seem to have kind of leached into the sports zeitgeist here in the, in the U S um, in, in a way that, that now it's all of the global geopolitical stories that pop up. It seems like there is a, an F1 tie to it as well. The international aspect of the F1 business essentially means that there is kind of always an omnipresence to the circuit, depending on what's happening 
globally around the world. And I think that's also, at least right now, uh, is a factor in its popularity as well. Yeah, well, the most recent race, I mean, you had Saudi Arabia and, of course, you had the, the oil field that was hit. So you had sort of a burning oil field right next to where the track or, you know, the, the course and like, no, it's okay. Everything's safe. We're going to put on the event. Um, yeah. And, and Russia invades Ukraine and suddenly there's, you know, people with Russian ties that are, that are ra- literally racing in the circuit or are funding uh, his son's team in the circuit that, that then suddenly, you know, they have to unwind their, their business relationships with F1. There's just so much kind of internationally intriguing about the sport that seems to be on a level above even other international sports like soccer. Well, the best metric we can tell you are sales and eyeballs. And, you know, we wrote about the uh, Austin race and just the pre-sale for that event off the charts. You know, the the interest was off the charts. And then I can tell you the people who read the story about us writing about that. It it was just, again, off the chart readership. People were definitely interested in F1. And you know what else they can get on Sportico, Evan? Hmm. Here's a headline for your story with Daniel Libet. And, and, and <laughs> I, 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 lo- I love the headline. We're shifting gears here, literally. We're, in literally a shifting, way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. MSU, Penn State, and the man cave dilemma. Now, I, you know, I covet great headlines. It's what we do. We, we want to entice the reader. I, I got to read that. So, so I did. In essence, it's a collegiate sports licensing story. And you, you walk away seeing how some properties... Some institutions have changed the way they do business. Most overwhelmingly have not. Why don't you fill in on how it got started? How did you like find this? And then what you found sort of while reporting. Yeah, it's, it's a fun one. And, and, and where it got started, I think, is the right way to start this conversation. Uh, I was looking at this website, FOCO, which is a, a company that sells a lot of licensed uh, fan gear of various sorts. I don't even remember how, but I somehow was looking at my screen and, and, and on it was a man cave sign that they sell. That And I can't remember the, the school, so I'll insert, let's say it was University of Michigan here. It was Michigan Man Cave. Uh, and the wording was, man controls all remotes when the Wolverines are playing. And on the bottom, it said, what happens in the cave stays in the cave. And my immediate reaction was, man, this is just not a, not a very good product. Like, this is obviously playing into some gender stereotypes. The idea that the, the man is the, is the sports fan of the household feels like an idea that should be fairly outdated by, by now in, in the sports licensing world. Well, it's then not, I ask, well, then I ask is, is there a non-gender specific name we could come up for a sports spot in your basement that the fan, had, the fan cave, right? Okay, which is, which is, isn't that what major league baseball had? Didn't they call it the fan cave when the, they did it in the New York? NHL, yeah, they, they, so other people have started using the fan cave. All of the NHL signs say say fan cave, by the way. But there's there's a bunch in the college world all say man, man cave, etc. So I'm poking around and I'm saying, wow, this is I'm shocked that this is a product that still gets sold. And I'm looking at all the different schools available, and I realize that there are two signs in, in uh, of this version of this product that are fundamentally different than all the others. And it's Penn State and it's Michigan State. And instead of what happens in the cave stays in the cave, they have cheer on Michigan State and have fun. And instead of man controls all remotes, it says no changing the channel when Penn State is playing. Uh, and, and obviously, Scott, if you're even casual sports fans, yeah. will we'll know that those are two schools that have been in the news 
for uh, similar and pretty horrible reasons in the past decade. They have overseen employees of theirs, two of the worst sexual predation scandals uh, in sports history, probably in the U.S. So we were thinking this can't be a coincidence that that the two schools, the school where Larry Nasser and, and Jerry Sandusky did their horrible things, that those are the two schools that, that, that just coincidentally don't have uh, this version of the product. And Daniel Libet, our colleague, spoke with, with the woman at, at Michigan State who rejected the original plan. And she laid it all out for us. She said, look, it, it, it felt outdated. It felt creepy. Those are her words. And that in, in, in the post Larry Nasser era, Michigan State has to think very differently about what types of products it puts uh, the Michigan State Spartans logo and colors on. And that product, a man cave sign that says what happens in the cave stays in the cave and man controls all remotes didn't fit kind of the new the new sensitivities around licensing at Michigan State. And I think that's totally fascinating that, that again, there are dozens of schools and professional teams that are selling this man cave sign. The two that have made kind of the, 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 the most drastic step away from it are two for whom recent history has made them just more hyper aware of the way a lot of these things get read by, by, by people who see them. Now, do you or, or Daniel, did either of you get the sense that the fact that a woman was in that role played a part in Michigan State being more sensitive. At least that is one person who took a sensitivity to it that perhaps a man might not have. That's really interesting. I would love to know kind of from the kind of director of licensing at, at, at major schools and teams, what the breakdown is of, of men and women who look at it. To, to anecdotally, the people that I have shown the, the man version of the sign to, almost everybody who's looked at it is like, they groan, right? Everybody who looks at it is like, ah, that's not a very good product. Uh, so yeah, I, again, I would like to think that it shouldn't matter what gender you are to look at that and Correct. say, oh, maybe that's not something that we want to be. But you can certainly kind of see that with. there would be a market for it as is. Absolutely. And, and, and to be totally fair to FOCO here, there are dozens and dozens of quote unquote man cave branded team fan gear products out there. There's rugs, there's signs, there's pillows, there's grill covers. Uh, the idea of the man cave, which to be totally clear, I think the idea of, of a man cave is not, man cave is not a triggering word to me at all. I think it is the kind of the extension of it that you see in these signs. But the idea of the man cave is something that is pervasive right now in sports licensing. I would not be shocked, Scott, if that kind of disappears over the course of the next few years as more and more people start to look at these products the way that, that it's clear that a few colleges are already. Yeah, I was going to say, can we put the term that one executive gave us about regional sports networks? They're melting glaciers, sort of these sexist products and approach <laughs> to college licensed products that also a glacier of sales, but a melting glacier little by little. This reminds me, let's see. All right, I'm going to test test that, you know, our bond because we do this very well. Yeah. This reminds me of a story we did a while back. Do you, is it coming to your mind which one huh. it would be? No. If I give you the author, you'll know. Emily Karen wrote it. Oh yeah, of course. The, the way in which uh, college athletic departments group female hygiene products yes. alongside taboo things like tobacco, like tobacco alcoholic guns. drinks, guns, and sports betting products. Yes. Correct. That's yes. exactly right. It, it yeah. just had the same. And then all it took was somebody to point it out to people at the school and right away they took action and, and changed the policy. Emily, Emily got that language taken out of essentially all of the new deals that, that are happening in, in, in college sports rights right now, which is, which is pretty amazing. And, and that's a great analogy, Scott, because it's exactly right. It's the kind of thing that, that is kind of grandfathered in that has just been a part of, of, of that world for a really long time. But when you specifically call your attention to it, 
almost anyone who hears it is like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be doing that anymore. Yeah, maybe how, it's time to change the approach uh, to, to that specifically. I wonder how many you know legal departments actually reread the contracts, or it's just well, yeah, we're just going to renew or use the boilerplate language we had already and just send it on its way. Let's rubber stamp and, and just sign a new deal. Yeah, it's a good question. All right, let's talk about the final four a little bit now. Were you thinking about buying tickets? Like, if I I was just in New Orleans. So I, you know, I'm not going back. I didn't get a chance to have any oysters because my kid hates seafood and he ruined my trip, at least from a food standpoint. Don't even get me started. <laughs> not, not a single oyster or, or good seafood dinner in, in my two and a half days That's and nights. Brutal. in New And you know me, you know how much I yeah, love that Yeah, you're going stuff. for the eight dozen. <laughs> yeah, I could have sat in Felix's for like four hours, read my phone and just kept eating and eating and gotten my picture on the wall as sort of like some kind of record holder, but did not. But anyway, if you're going to go in, uh, and uh, hope to see Caroline and Duke, you better uh, bring some, some big-time money because uh, the prices spiked as soon as it was a first ever. Again, we couldn't believe Duke-Carolina matchup in the tournament. Yeah, I'm not looking to buy tickets. I would love to be looking to sell tickets. There you go. <laughs> that, would a, that would be a nice situation. Yeah, the the uh, tickets right now, and 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 by the time this publishes, it'll probably be a bit outdated. But average ticket sales that I'm seeing right now are in the thousands. I cannot think of the last time that that's happened for a for a for a set of Final Four games. There's obviously just tremendous intrigue about the first time these two, two schools, massive rivals, are meeting in the tournament, kind of layered on top of the fact that it is Coach K's potentially last game or second to last game coaching uh, in college. There's so much here that, that's going on that is kind of driving up the price here. And in the same way that there's demand to see it live, Scott, there's going to be a ton of people tuning in on television. This is a great result for Turner as well. Uh, when they televise this, I, I think Anthony Krupe wrote this for us earlier this week. I think Duke is responsible for the four most watched college basketball games uh, since the turn of the millennium. And Duke is like the Howard Stern of college basketball. Like the reason yep. Howard Stern had such boffo ratings was like half the people loved him, half the people hated him, but they listened to him. Exactly right. Yeah, it's the, it's the Dallas Cowboys effect. I would not be shocked if this ends up, and, and I know Turner has maybe slightly smaller distribution than a lot of those games that are also in the top four, but this is going to do a massive, massive number uh, for Turner just because of, as, as we just mentioned, kind of all of the different levels of intrigue here layered on top of, again, that this is the semifinals of, of March Madness. All right. I mean, and I don't want to give away too many of our stories, but I, I find it interesting because it's Coach K's last game. And if Duke makes that championship and if they win, the, the, the memorabilia angle on all this at, at a very hot time for collectibles, you know, whether it's the game ball, whether it's the court, because the winning team has the option to buy the court, uh, interest there probably through the roof as well. That's what we're hearing. Uh, but anyway, on to uh, the NFL, NFL owners meetings. Now, a lot of stuff came out, but you and I agreed that of all the noise, besides sort of like the bills getting their, you know, taxpayer funded stadium, 850 million bucks, we were most interested by a little nugget that Dan Kaplan unearthed uh, in The Athletic about the NFL considering a, di a direct-to-consumer product, you know, added football, more football, inside football, just with a, a monthly subscription, sort of, you know, the Netflix of football. Here we go. That, that's, that's what it is. How much football do people need? And in this new world, or, uh, new world order of media, how do they want it? And what's the appetite and how much are they willing to pay? It's a really 
I'm sure it's a really fascinating and interesting time right now for the the people that are running the NFL's media approach because Brian Sunday Rolep. Ticket, Sunday, Brian Rolop, yeah, Sunday Ticket is 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 out and available. They're talking to companies about that. They are interested in potentially bringing on a strategic investor for all of the NFL-owned uh, media properties, including NFL Network and and the website. Um, and now, as Dan reported, also looking at potentially their own standalone direct-to-consumer streaming uh, group. There, there's just a lot of different ways now to slice and dice. Uh, all of these packages right now, and and, and NFL clearly, to, to their credit and smartly, are thinking about all of the different possibilities. Everything, yeah, thinking I know about all the all the different possibilities. Jonathan Kraft is the chair of the digital committee, you know, and, and he's a perfect guy for that. You know, I know Jonathan is looking at all new media. How do we reach people? What's the best way? I'm not so sure that's the case with a large majority of NFL owners. I'm, I'm wondering what these presentations are like. To are they being dragged into the new world? order of media or are they running toward the light? I, I, I don't know what it is because it is a, a watershed moment here that, you know, this is a big change for the NFL. And if you just stick with business as usual, and by the way, business as usual has been pretty darn good for the NFL. You could start to see an erosion of that domination. You got to stay on top of it and, and, and adapt. And like, what was it? Mike Bloomberg used to say the worst reason to do something is because that's how it's always been done. Mm. Right. That would be easy for the NFL, yeah. but they also, have the luxury in little bits and pieces of trying new things with very little risk. So uh, I'm really excited to see, and I mean that, I mean, the word is excited, to see who they sell to, if they sell a piece, how those companies utilize this stuff. Is it going to be Apple? Is it going to be Amazon? And just exactly what the new ecosystem of media looks like for the NFL. Yeah, I think that point is so is so right on, Scott, because from the from the main TV viewership standpoint, the NFL has been very steadfast. The thing it cares about is its reach. Yep. And that is the reason why it just signed another 11 years, $115 million, primarily from- Billion, the main, billion, 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 billion. Billion, sorry. Primarily from the main broadcast companies, right? That is set in stone. But on this other- side, smaller streaming digital carve out. package carve out. Yes, they can do some interesting things. And, and as much as we kind of sometimes laugh about the NFL being slow and doesn't have to be the first to move, in this regard, the NFL has actually been fairly innovative. If you remember, they were streaming games on Yahoo at this point, it feels like eight years ago or so for some of those games in, in the UK, way before I think any other of the major US sports leagues were, were, were doing any of the deals with the major tech companies to do their own streaming stuff. The NFL has streamed games on Twitter. They've, they've streamed games on Amazon, obviously. They, they've, done a, they've worked with a lot of different companies. They've done stuff with Verizon on mobile. Um, they've been fairly innovative in this specific realm. And you're right. I think if I was working at any other league, I would be very eagerly awaiting to see what the NFL is doing with its owned media properties, what it's going to do if they want to do their own NFL plus subscription service, if they want to just hand it all over to Apple or Amazon and say, Hey, you run with this and, and, and cut us in whatever it is. I think a lot of eyeballs are going to be opened when the NFL decides how it wants to divvy this stuff up. All right. I'm going to give you the groan. You know, the deal negotiated between the NFL and Verizon. Yeah. I mean, obviously, those are important deals. I would say it was probably all Hans on deck. Mm. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh. For those who don't, Hans Schroeder, NFL executive in media, Hans Vestberg, the CEO of Verizon. Oh, boy. No good? No good? Not horrible, but oh, gosh. Right, yeah, we, need wanna, a, we need a grown trumpet as yeah, well. well, as well I'm sure Matt Whitehurst will find it. By the way, I want to let you know I took a picture of your, your face on the computer here. 
with the LeBron picture I, I referenced earlier. So we'll put that on Twitter so people who, who looks can better? see that. Uh, it's LeBron. I'm, uh, yeah, you, you actually, I, and, and I'm not, normally I would have, you know me, I'm honest. I would have said you, you look a little weird. Like, okay. You look like Steven Stamkos if your face was like dragged out for some reason. So. <laughs> We'll After people, doing a doing a fight with Ryan Reeves, yeah, it, there, there you go, there, there you go. Anyway, he is Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I'm Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer, as mentioned, Matt Whitehurst, our digital media editor. New title for Core Development. Congratulations. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network.